On Progressive Spirit, the theme is fire and tears. Andrew Manis is author of A Fire You Can't Put Out, The Civil Rights Life of Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. But it was a parry and thrust over a long seven-year period that I think uh, has, of course I think this, but uh, I think the Birmingham story and the, the story of the confrontation between Bull and Fred is the most drama per day over a seven-year period than you can find any place else in the whole civil rights story in America. Michael Eric Dyson is author of Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white America. When we think about the Hayes situation in Portland, when we think about uh, Michael Brown in, in, in Ferguson, it charged me. Uh, the police officer reduced Michael Brown to a thing. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. For the Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schock. He was a Daniel who emerged from the lion's den because of the frequency with which he managed to escape death. Hmm. Uh, and for that reason, the sheer courage of his willingness to sacrifice life and limb uh, for the movement made everyone like him. In 1999, Andrew Manis, professor of American religious history, wrote A Fire You Can't Put Out, The Civil Rights Life of Birmingham's Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. This book is in the process of being made into a film. We'll talk with him about that later this hour. When we think about the Hayes situation in Portland, when we think about uh, Michael Brown in, in, in Ferguson, it charged me. Uh, the police officer reduced Michael Brown to a thing, to an it. You know, Martin Buber talked about it, I and thou. And uh, what Dr. King talked about, the thingification of our society, making things out of people. And so black people are, are the boogeyman, the perennial, uh, preternatural, perpetual boogeyman uh, to many white people. The collective white unconscious sees black people as inherently threatening. And black masculinity and black femininity, uh, female identity is somehow threatening. That black people uh, represent something dangerous and provocative that must be contained and corralled and ultimately eliminated and terminated. We begin with a conversation with Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. He is a Georgetown University sociology professor, a New York Times contributing opinion writer, and a contributing editor of The New Republic and of ESPN's The Undefeated website. In January, he released Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white America. Fire and tears are today's themes. Welcome, Dr. Dyson, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you, sir, for having me. Tell me a little bit about your book. You started out wanting it, uh, as I understand, to be uh, an academic treatise, but it ended up being a sermon. Yes, sir. I was uh, trying my best to make this a reflection on race in America uh, through an analytical prism through a perhaps even a set of essays, uh, through a monograph, but I struggled with it, threw it against the wall metaphorically, tore it up uh, symbolically, uh, argued with my uh, editor literally, <laughs> and then uh, went to bed after many a day of gnashing of teeth and wailing, and it came to me that I should um, you know, do this as a sermon. Uh, and then I got up, and I began to write what is essentially the opening salvo and, um, you know, introduction, the, the prelude, so to speak. And it poured out of me. And I knew then that I had what I needed, the form uh, itself as a Jeremiah, as a sermon, as in a form of address to America from my heart to white America's heart, as a spiritual connection, as a religious act, as a sacred duty of communication and bearing witness and testimony to the trials and tribulations, the traumas, the sufferings uh, endured by uh, black people in America, 
And the best way to do that was through a sermon uh, couched in a historic liturgical form where it was a church service all together. Uh, and not fearing that I would turn anybody off because I think that the, the, the approach of the sermon is not to thunder down from the pulpit what's going on, but to get in the trenches with the people to try to express uh, my viewpoints about what we need in order to make progress in this nation. And in the form of a sermon, meaning that it really is a spiritual problem. This isn't about tactics, necessarily, or uh, philosophies or, or theories or anything. It's about touching the heart, touching if there is anything human among white people. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Presuming that the humanity is there, uh, depending upon that humanity, uh, to reach out to serious engagement with uh, human beings and trying to grapple with uh, the problem of race in America and the traumas of police brutality, uh, social injustice, and the various and sundry forms of racial intolerance and bigotry uh, that pop up. So that's what I depended on, and not simply a tactic, not simply a modus operandi or a literary convention, but indeed an attempt as an ordained Baptist minister um, for the last, you know, 35 years to come to grips with this spiritual crisis uh, of back the racial trauma that we're enduring. And this does come directly from your personal experience as, as a Baptist pastor, from your heart, from your own experience of racism and experiencing it every day. Absolutely. Um, as a black man in America, born in Detroit, Michigan, I've had my share of racial um, problems, of enduring bigotry and racism and confronting it in various forms. And I wanted to use that as the basis of my identification with and call out to uh, American citizens, black and white and others, uh, who, have been grappling, who have been grappling with this situation, who have been victims of it, who have been unconscious perpetuators of a legacy of even polite bigotry or light racism, um, and to try to come to grips with all that it means uh, in a spiritual framework that allows people to take off the blinders and adopt the spiritual language of conversion, of recognition, of baptism, of witness, of testimony, and the like. You and I are both uh, preachers. Uh, yesterday in my Palm Sunday sermon, I, I said that I'm a racist, I'm a white person, and I said everybody here is, who is white is racist. Am I right? Well, look, in the same way that no matter, as a man, I try to squeeze out of the sexism out of me. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm in a sexist culture, brother. And yeah. as a man, I'm a participating sexist, trying to reject it. Uh, I participate in a culture of male supremacy. Uh, and one of the ways to do it is to recognize that I participate in, in terms of male privilege. It's hard for us men to do so, but we have to confront it. Martin Luther King Jr. at the end of his life said, I'm sorry to announce that most Americans are unconscious racists. So to that degree, we have all participated in a culture, either been complicit in and unconsciously perpetuating a legacy of inequality. And as white people in America, white privilege, white power, um, white supremacy have been seductive. And white racism is not simply about a conscious attempt to dominate another group. It is the participation in a culture of privilege, of inheritance, of language, of convention, of style, of motivation, of unconscious um, if you will, uh, compulsions that are addressed uh, sometimes consciously and sometimes not. So to that degree, yes, I think that uh, white brothers and sisters who may not be aware of the fact that they participate in a culture that has shaped them, that has continued um, to distort and corrode Americans' culture and society, to that degree, I think it becomes uh, very important for white brothers and sisters to grapple with it on a conscious level. So we marinate, really, in, in racism, and it, and it is in the interests of whites to deny that racism exists materially. I mean, uh, that, that's part of that's the biggest factor in some respects, isn't it? The very denial that there is racism, which, of course, keeps racism uh, in place and in, in our structures yeah. and in our personal lives. Well, right. Not only the denial of it, but hey, you know, or, or or if you do exist, if it does exist, hey, it's not me. 
You know, I, it's those bigots over there. It's the Trump supporters. It's not me. I'm a liberal white person in America. I give to, you know, uh, good funds, United Negro College Fund, and I try to support my local NAACP. I can't possibly be a racist. And then when we began to think about the fact that racism is not simply about personal attitude, it's about structural inequalities, it's about the complicity in a system that awards privileges to some and denies opportunities to others, why black and Latino and First Nation kids are kicked out of school earlier and with more frequency than white kids, that they are shunted toward prison and shunted toward jails and shunted toward detention, while there's a disproportionate concentration of those people of color uh, in the criminal justice system, while why black people are being denied access to the franchise um, in terms of voter ID laws. Um, you know, when you look across the board, the conspiracy against uh, the equality of African-American or black people or Latino people or others in this country, uh, there's no denying that racism is deep and pervasive and it's not simply about uh, bigotry and attitude, though that's critical. It's also about practices that are denied that people benefit from. It's about appropriation of other cultures without acknowledging. I just read an essay uh, by Professor Jonathan Zimmerman, I think, who was trying to say that, you know, uh, when Chuck Berry died and people talked about appropriating black culture, hey, well, Chuck Berry appropriated white white uh, singers too. So it's a myth that there's anything of appropriation. This is the kind of complicity and denial uh, that we have to confront when it comes to whiteness in America. My guest is uh, Michael Eric Dyson. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, Tears, We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America is this book that we are discussing. You mentioned whiteness. What is whiteness? Well, whiteness is a culture of privilege. Whiteness is a political identity. You know, many white brothers and sisters come in and say, look, I'm Lithuanian, I'm Polish, I'm Irish, I'm Italian, I'm Jewish. Um, I'm an ethnic American, so to speak. But whiteness is a political identity that is given to one, ascribed to one, assigned to one beyond one's own um, inheritance uh, genetically. People are not born white in that sense. As James Baldwin reminds us, it's a political identity. It is a cultural and social formation. It is a um, what we call now uh, a socially constructed identity. It's not something that the genes tell on. It's what we make of the genetic inheritances and ascribing certain value to one and not to the other, of giving privilege to one and not the other. The historic, um, if you will, unfolding and evolution of race, racism in the West suggests that white privilege asserted itself, white dominance, white supremacy became a method, a modality of existence, a code of communication, a, a culture of if you will, transmission of value, of insight, of worth and value. And so whiteness is a socially constructed identity ascribed to European Americans and others who appropriate that identity, who use that whiteness uh, often unconsciously uh, and sometimes consciously to establish privilege, to reinforce value and to assert superiority. And conversely, uh, to deny those same qualities to other groups and peoples. So what is the sermon? How, how does the sermon get through this huge evil of this white identity? I mean, how, how is it broken? Well, it, it probably won't be broken until we can acknowledge uh, that it's real, oh. that, you know, that whiteness is a reality that people have to confront. See, white brothers and sisters, um, you know, can't, um, you know, often are not, you know, invited to acknowledge that whiteness is a reality. In the same way that men, when they hear gender, what do they think? Oh, we're talking about women. We're talking about those issues. No, men have a gender too. That's why patriarchal prerogatives have to be acknowledged. That's why patriarchy has to be uh, put on the table, male supremacy and the like. And the fact that men have a gender, a toxic masculinity that needs to be addressed, a predatory sexual culture that is perpetuated. When we look at whether the president of the United States of America, Donald Trump, in terms of the accusation of all these women, or Bill O'Reilly, uh, a talk show host, um, the way in which men dodge responsibility for and deny outright their complicity in a culture of predatory sexual behavior, um, uh, sexism, um, if you will, patriarchy, or you know the way in which uh, rape culture is perpetuated as a legacy in this and country. So the same way, white brothers and sisters are not often asked 
to identify themselves as white, to acknowledge that they have a racial identity, and to be real about what that racial identity is, and to acknowledge that that racial identity must be grappled with, must be put forth, and many people are in denial. Uh, as the writer Gore Vidal uh, said, we live in the United States of amnesia. And so many of us deny the legitimacy of a racial category, or if we do acknowledge it, don't acknowledge the degree to which we are complicit in its perpetuation and deriving benefit and privilege from it. And so in that sense, uh, my sermon is to wake white brothers and sisters up to renounce their white innocence, the refusal to come to grips with whiteness as a political and social identity, as a category of being, of a, as an existential and political, um, if you will, force that needs to be grappled with. Renounce that white innocence. I mean, and that's, yeah, that's really the key of it. Also, that the white fragility, uh, defending ourselves, oh, just, you know, we can't make us feel too bad. Exactly. You know, my feelings are hurt. Don't tell me too much. You uh -huh. know, you're insulting me. You're hurting me. Please. You know, why do you make me feel uncomfortable? Why do you make me squirm? Aren't you being assaultive? Aren't you being aggressive? Why are you bringing this up now? Can't we talk about this later? Why is it that you're constantly speaking about race? Why don't you black people think about something else? Why are you constant, you know, on and on and on? It's about white vulnerability. It's about white feelings. It's about white tears. Tell me about um, policing, if you would. I'm here in Portland. Um, we had a young man here, uh, Qantas Hayes, 17-year-old. Uh, he was shot by police. Uh, do you know uh, about that story? Can you say anything uh, about the level of police and violence and young people dying at the hands of police and I mean, here, prejudices here involved in that? I mean, here's an example of, of the extraordinary difficulty that black people have in convincing white people that this is a reality that we confront. Police brutality is real. It's, it's a reality that many white brothers and sisters don't have because the police don't treat them uh, the same way. When we look at what happens to Qantas Hayes, Qantas Hayes that you know the, 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 the grand jury there, I think, ruled that the shooting uh, was justified. How many times do we have to hear that unarmed black people um, are, are it, it's a justification for killing them, that it is all right to kill them, that it's acceptable, it's legal to kill them, that there is little defense we have uh, in the system of law in this country and of criminal justice to be able to support and, and sustain us um, as we argue that our lives should make a difference, that they matter. Time and again, and this is what I address in my book, police brutality rises up in America and makes a mockery of the justice system, makes a mockery of who we are uh, as human beings, that makes a mockery of us as American citizens who should be protected by the law and not made more vulnerable by that law. And so it is difficult for a police person to be brought to justice in our criminal justice system. Grand juries often will not indict a police officer in the commission of a crime. And when they do, as they did with the police officer down in South Carolina, who killed Walter Scott on tape, unbeknownst to him, or should I say on recording, um, and shot him in the back eight times, a white juror said, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't convict him. And so this is how white privilege operates. Even when we have clear and ample empirical evidence of the commission of a crime, often white officers will not be held accountable in killing uh, often unarmed uh, black or brown uh, people. So this is the, this is the kind of uh, you know, lunacy, uh, according to many black people, and the uh, paradox, according to me and many white people, uh, that we live in. Lunacy because we keep saying it and we keep having to prove that it's true. And no matter how much we do it, uh, it's there. Paradox because, you know, many white people say, well, look, you know, we live in a culture where black people commit most of the crime. And therefore, uh, most of the crime is not, uh, ironically or paradoxically enough, uh, involving black uh, people being killed by white police officers. It's black on black crime. And of course, you know, it is true that 93% of black people who are murdered are murdered by black people, but 84% of white people who are murdered are murdered by white people. There's no white on white crime. There's no paradigm established where uh, white people are held to account or demonized in a similar fashion or seen as worthy of other deaths 
because the majority of deaths will come through their killing of each other. We don't do this one, the opiate addiction. Oh my God, why are you worried about the opiate addiction? Why are you worried about uh, white people dying from heroin and the like? Most of you are dying at your own hands, so stop it. We don't see that. But when black people say the police are killing us, oh, well, forget that. <clears throat> Most of you are being killed by your own. Well, many of you are, you know, as, as much as the heroin addiction exists, most of you are not dying by heroin. You're dying at the hands of other white people who murder you. That's the kind of insult that black people have to live with constantly. And it's the kind of refusal to acknowledge the situation in which we live and the complicity of white culture and a criminal justice system that is often insensitive to us. Michael Eric Dyson, Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white America on uh, progressive spirit. Back to the police. And in what level it is the police, but it's it's far deeper than that. Obviously, it's it's uh, it's protection of whiteness that the police are paid to do. So right, so, right, so there's right. so you've got two things going. You've got you've got abuses within the police department, but it's not enough to say that the white power structure sets it up like that, so that it always happens. Yeah, I mean the reality is that we're dealing with systems, not just individual uh, people and values and viewpoints. We're talking about the way in which unconscious bias, implicit bias operates, the belief that black and brown people are more likely to commit a crime, the belief, even among some black and brown people, uh, the belief that black people are more inherently inferior intellectually, morally, uh, that they are pathological, that the cultures they produce are somehow incapable of sustaining an apt moral and ethical um, uh, attitude and behavior and orientation and disposition. So yeah, it's a systematic uh, if you will, problem, uh, along with what you talked about, a systematic denial of opportunity, the criminal justice system having a structural, not simply an individual problem, that the ways in which our criminal justice system is, so to speak, rigged, uh, the fact is it reproduces the very pathology it is meant to relieve. Um, so it doesn't administer criminal justice blindly so that the scales of justice uh, operate to affect and benefit all equally, uh, it is tilted toward uh, black and brown people in the negative. It refuses to acknowledge uh, the fundamental uh, inequalities that are, uh, that are built into the system and the ways in which poorer people who happen to be black and brown are mistreated uh, in a criminal justice system and the ways in which they don't have enough resource or uh, material support to benefit themselves when they are charged with the crime. They don't even have enough money to bail themselves out um, and to be bailed out. And as a result of that, end up rotting in a system that uh, where they should have never been locked up in the first place. Think about the Khalif Browder story, where he is misidentified as the perpetrator of a crime, doesn't have sufficient money to get bailed out, and then doesn't want a cop to a plea uh, in the criminal justice system that would leave him with a record and therefore even more vulnerable of all for something he didn't do. And as a result of that, stayed locked up for a few years, uh, was abused um, in every uh, imaginable way, and then ended up taking his life when he was let out of jail. Um, these are the kinds of issues that must be addressed structurally. What is it about the very nature of uh, the criminal justice system that prevents opportunity of defense and equal distribution of, uh, if you will, access uh, to your innocent until proven guilty and the resources to support that claim uh, in our society. So when you look at all that stuff, many white brothers and sisters will not recognize the degree to which there is a structural as well as an existential and personal investment uh, and dimension uh, to the criminal justice system, and therefore to policing in America, and therefore to the black and white divide that we continue to confront. And all of this is also related to just this uh, this internal fear that people have of the other. I mean, it's uh, in the case, again, back to Qantas Hayes, uh, shot by an AR-15 rifle 15 feet away, once in the head, twice in the torso, because the police officer believed he had a weapon, but didn't see it, admitted in his own uh, self that he didn't see uh, a weapon. But um, all of these cops around him were so un in, in danger. What is that? That is the fear of black masculinity, the fear of black personhood, the fear of black femininity, the fear of black people. Why do you roll up on Tamir Rice 
and within two seconds shoot him dead in Cleveland um, because it, there was a report of somebody wielding a gun and the like. And he's a 12-year-old kid playing in the park, but he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. Why? Because he's a black male. He looks older than he is. A report was released a few years ago suggesting that black kids are denied their childhood. They look older to white people than they are. Therefore, they look like adults. And the irony is many black children are treated as adults as men if they're uh, you know, male children, and many men and women are treated as children uh, by the same criminally um, unjust uh, and racist American system. So Barack Obama was treated like a black child to many, and Tamir Rice was exaggerated as a black man. Uh, both are discarded and disposable. And when we think about the Hayes situation in Portland, when we think about uh, Michael Brown in, in, in Ferguson, it charged me. Uh, the police officer reduced Michael Brown to a thing, to an it. You know, Martin Buber talked about ikhundun, I and thou. And the, what Dr. King talked about, the thingification of our society, making things out of people. And so black people are, are the boogeyman, the perennial, uh, preternatural, perpetual boogeyman uh, to many white people. The collective white unconscious sees black people as inherently threatening and black masculinity and black femininity, uh, female identity is somehow threatening, that black people uh, represent something dangerous and provocative that must be contained and corralled and ultimately eliminated and terminated. And so this is what you're dealing with, the collective belief about their essential and enduring harm and trauma to the culture, and uh, an enduring trauma and harm to the culture that must be relieved, must be resisted, and finally, uh, must be eradicated. I'm speaking with Michael Eric Dyson, author of Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white America. We will continue that conversation after the break. Still to come this hour, history professor Andrew Manis discusses the legacy of Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Shuck. Stay with us. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. We're discussing his book, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. So for white people, what would you say the first thing to do is, is, is also to, to listen to the experience. I, I talked with this with, with my congregation to actually listen to the experience of black people and to trust it. Absolutely. Uh, you got to tell the truth. You got to open your mind. You got to hear what black people are saying. And you got you to see their humanity. Think about if it was your people, your culture, your tribe, your denomination, your church. If it was somebody you knew and loved, you'd believe them. You'd go, well, they would never make that up. Yep. Uh, I know this person. But the reality is you've got to believe that what people are saying is true because you believe in their essential humanity. You know, uh, hosting strangers in the Bible is not simply about the person next to you. It's about this issue. The stranger who has been made strange because of your refusal to know him or her, your refusal to accept him or her, your refusal to engage them and to see them the very legitimacy that you possess, the very humanity you possess, the very intelligence you possess. And when we do that, then we begin to see our brother as ourselves, our sister as ourselves. Then we become our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. When, when Christians can own up to the sin of the refusal to acknowledge the humanity of the other, then we're making progress. As the late great uh, church historian James Washington, James Melvin Washington said, many of us go to church to love God instead of our neighbors. We don't want to deal with the huh. other. But, but it was in the Bible where we hear the statement repeated, how can you love God whom you've never seen and yet not love your brother or sister who you see every day? Yeah. 
Wow, thank you for this sermon. I, I just one other, you know, as, as as you were talking, I was also again going back to uh, the Qantas A situation and realizing how much effort was put out to not be able to have Qantas Hayes be seen as a human being. Oh, um, yes. I mean, this is the constant worry that black people have, the threat that we are seen as a menace. And the moment a charge is against us, we have to be perfect victims. White folk can have DUIs, go to jail 10 times. You're still my child. You're still my neighbor. You're still my person, my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife. They, are, they have their humanity preserved amidst their frailty and fragility. Black people have to be perfect. And even then, uh, they are targets. So, yes, we have to see black people as human to begin with. And when we do that, then we will stop some of the evil practices and some of the unjust realities that flow in our criminal justice system, more broadly in American society and in our relations between each other. Michael Eric Dyson has been my guest on Progressive Spirit, the author of Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white America, a sermon uh, we all need to hear every Sunday. Thank you, uh, Professor Dyson, for being with me today. Pastor Shuck, thank you so much for having me. Andrew Manis is professor of American Religious History at Middle Georgia State University in Macon, Georgia. He's the author of a number of books on race, religion, and the civil rights movement, including Southern Civil Religions in Conflict, Black and White Baptists, and Civil Rights, 1947 to 1957. We're going to focus today on a book he wrote in 1999 called A Fire You Can't Put Out, The Civil Rights Life of Birmingham's Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. It received great critical acclaim, including receiving the 2000 Lillian Smith Book Award. Now, it is in the process of being made into a film. A screenplay has been written. Now, Professor Manis is looking for the connections to make that happen. Welcome to Progressive Spirit. Thank you, John. It's a great honor to be with you. Tell me a little bit about your interest in Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. Going back, how how did you become interested in him? I was... uh born and raised in Birmingham, uh, and lived there through most of the civil rights era. Uh, I found it interesting later on as a scholar that uh, I hardly ever heard of him uh, when I lived in in Birmingham. Of course, you couldn't live there during the civil rights era without hearing about Martin Luther King. Somewhere along the line, as I began to study the civil rights movement, the name Shuttlesworth came to be associated with uh, the uh, Birmingham demonstrations of 1963. That was the academic way in which I became interested in Fred Shuttlesworth. Near the end of my first year in seminary, uh, where I studied at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, I uh, went and spent uh, a Friday night uh, with my uncle in Cincinnati. He um, uh, asked what I was doing, and I, at that point I was writing a paper about uh, Martin Luther King, and out of the blue he asked me if I had ever heard of Fred Shuttlesworth. I said, yes, of course, I just read about him in King's Why We Can't Wait. And uh, my Uncle Bill said, well, I happen to be building his church. Would you like me to call him and see if he can come over? I'm sure he'd be glad to talk to you. And an hour later... Uh, this uh, legendary part of the civil rights movement was sitting with me in my uncle's living room or den, and uh, and that began began a conversation that lasted about uh, 25 years. Well, that was my next question. Uh, he died in uh, 2011 at the age of 89. So you developed a, a friendship with him then over the years, even before your book was published, and and then afterward. Well, yeah, I did, which uh, scared me at first because I was trying to write a history that was uh, legitimately even-handed. The reviewers said that the that the book was even-handed and and showed the flaws. Shuttlesworth recognized that, and uh, to his credit, uh, he never tried to uh, affect what I wrote. In fact, he never read a word of it until it was in book form in front of him. I did upwards of 75 hours of interview with him, and that was that just counted the 
the conversations when the tape recorder was running. Of course, there were other conversations as well. We got to be friends. Uh, I was uh, the only white minister to speak at his funeral, and there were about 40 or 45 speakers at his at his funeral. Wow. Uh, we started that funeral at 1030 in the morning and walked out at 430 that afternoon. It's like he was involved in everything. I, I really didn't realize. I mean, from the uh, the bombings to Freedom Rides, the March to Selma, a Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, he was really involved in the significant part of the entire civil rights movement. He was. He, he began to drop out a, a little bit as the movement moved north and in, into black power uh, methodology. He was there from the ground up. In fact, one of the... Uh, one of the criticisms that I personally had of the uh, Selma film of a couple of years ago was that there was no Fred Shuttlesworth depicted in the film whatsoever. And it was interesting because they, they had a scene in which uh, Malcolm X was a part of the Selma events uh, briefly. A- as it turned out, the particular day that Malcolm X was there Fred Shuttlesworth introduced him, and then they got into a bit of a debate after Malcolm's speech. But you you couldn't tell that from the film. He he certainly was there. And what I have often said is, insofar as the Birmingham campaign was watershed, in fact, King's star was uh, on the wane to a great extent because uh, his organization, and he personally had not had a, a major victory in the movement uh, since 1956 in the end of the Montgomery bus boycott. He was at a stage in his career where he really needed a victory, and Fred had been hammering him really over five years uh, prior to the 63 demonstrations to try to get King and Southern Christian Leadership Conference to join forces uh, with Fred and the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights, which he founded. It took about four years, as Fred said, for Martin to get up that mountain of decision and and finally commit himself to uh, helping desegregate Birmingham in these these major demonstrations of 63, the success of the demonstrations of 63 led directly to President Kennedy's decision to introduce a civil rights bill, which became the Civil Rights Act of 1964. As you mentioned, he was a bit critical of King, uh, saying the movement needed more than than what he said, what, flowery speeches? Um, what was his relationship uh, with Martin Luther King and, and other civil rights leaders? Fred was loved by all of them, and he was a symbolic figure. He was a Daniel who emerged from the lion's den because of the frequency with which he managed to escape death. Hmm. Uh, and in particular, the first bombing of his church where the bomb was literally under the floor, under the bed in which Fred lay, he emerged from that explosion without a, without a scratch or a slight bump on the head. That was uh, really the first of a number of incidents in which he came very close to being killed, but emerged safely. And, and for that reason, the sheer courage of his willingness to sacrifice life and limb uh, for the movement, made everyone like him, his sense of humor, his uh, making fun of uh, the Klan and Bull Connor, and just a, a lovely sense of humor made him very likable. There were times when people interpreted him as egotistical and uh, craving the spotlight, and so there were times when he could be prickly, And he had his disagreements with King. Their personalities are very different, and uh, their backgrounds are very different. But I'm certain there was mutual admiration in both hearts for one another. I'm speaking with uh, Andrew Manis. Uh, We're speaking about Fred Shuttlesworth, who you mentioned is is an unsung hero. Um, 
really he he wasn't hadn't been appreciated he's mentioned even recently with the film about selma uh, and and his role why do you suppose that is i think the press didn't know how to deal with someone like fred shuttlesworth dr king was highly educated sophisticated he could talk about uh, the movement uh, in philosophical and sociological terms fred shuttlesworth was a baptist preacher who hardly had a theological education at all. If he weren't black, he could have been close to being classified as a fundamentalist. The only way he knew to talk about the meaning of the civil rights movement was religious language. Religious language didn't get in the press very much in those days. It doesn't get in the, in the press very much these days, but actually quite a bit more now than was the case in the early 60s. And I think the fact that he was always talking about miraculous things that uh, kept him alive was off-putting to many in the press, which to some extent took some of the shine off his, uh, his career in the civil rights movement. You know, I really resonated with those moments uh, in which the congregation that he's serving uh, in Birmingham is a bit tired of being put, uh, I think as you put it, in the bull's eye. <laughs> well, and he did his activism from real theological reasons. Uh, there is just like you mentioned, Daniel uh, in the lion's den. Uh, how many times was his life threatened? Well, I've never counted. His church was bombed three times. Contrast that with uh, the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, which really was only bombed once. The congregation, that particular church, was really a Johnny-come-lately to the movement. Previous pastors at that church uh, had not allowed Shuttlesworth's group to have mass meetings there, but a new pastor came uh, to that congregation in 1962, someone who was more sympathetic to the movement and somewhat more sympathetic to Shuttlesworth. So three times his, his church was bombed. One of those times, by accident, it turned out that Shuttlesworth had already left that church and moved to Cincinnati, and the Klan didn't get that information in time. In both of the times that Shuttlesworth was on the premises when bombs went off, he escaped untouched. In 1957, he was beaten outside the all-white Phillips High School, I mean, seriously beaten with bats and bicycle chains and brass knuckles almost lost consciousness, even remembers a, a kind of religious experience where he hears the voice of God, not audibly, but, you know, intuited the voice of God saying, no, it's not time for you to go yet. Uh, I still have more for you to do. And he managed to get to his feet and back to the car. As they drove away, he still had the presence of mind to tell the driver not to run any red lights or any stop signs on the way to the hospital. When the doctor examined him, he was completely surprised that there were, was no concussion. Shuttlesworth simply said, Doc, the Lord knew I lived in a hard town, so he gave me a hard head. I, I should also mention that Bull Connor, working through his uh, police department with Klan ties, essentially had been involved in two of those bombings and even had hired the famous white supremacist lawyer from Georgia, uh, J.B. Stoner, to bomb the church. Uh, that was the second bombing. So there's a good bit of intrigue, and essentially that means those bombings were clearly designed to try to kill, or if not kill, at least uh, scare Shuttlesworth out of town. There was a time in relation to the to the Freedom Rides, which is one of the interesting chapters in his uh, civil rights life, where he insisted on uh, riding the bus. It's interesting because it was King's decision not to ride the buses during the Freedom Rides that caused some of the younger activists in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, otherwise known as SNCC, to speak in derogatory terms of King's leadership, but Shuttlesworth remained a hero to them because he was not willing to ask people to do anything he wouldn't do himself. He walked through a mob uh, that had circled the First Baptist Church of Montgomery 
and managed to get through that without a scratch. He integrated the beaches in St. Augustine, Florida, where Klansmen were in the water trying to drown blacks who got in the water at the beach. Shuttlesworth, having been one of those and didn't know how to swim, but he still uh, got waist deep in the water. I don't think anyone, including John Lewis, ever put himself in harm's way as often as Fred Shuttlesworth did. He usually said, I tried to get killed in Birmingham. And when he died and I was asked to give a comment about uh, his death, uh, my comment was that he didn't die in the civil rights movement was not for lack of trying. Um, <laughs> and, he, uh, and, it, and it was that sheer, sheer courage and uh, doggedness. Fire that couldn't be put out was first in, in him. It later spread to the people in Birmingham, ultimately is a sort of symbol for the entire civil rights movement, it, it seems to me. I'm speaking with Andrew Manis. He's the author of the 1999 book, A Fire You Can't Put Out, The Civil Rights Life of Birmingham's Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. Uh, We're talking about that book and an upcoming screenplay. But before we get to the screenplay, I wanted to ask another question about Fred Shuttlesworth. He was um, he put his body there for sure. And he also was quite an adept strategist wasn't he? I mean, he took on Bill Connor there for for seven years and kind of really outplayed him, didn't he? Well, really the the gist of the book, and even more so in the screenplay, is to focus on the seven years before the 63 demonstrations to, to show all of the ways that Shuttlesworth challenged segregation, as he called it, on all fronts. Bull Connor, of course, uh, was out to stop him at all costs. And so there were a number of confrontations between them. That reminds me of one of the last times uh, Shuttlesworth actually was hurt in the movement was actually during the demonstrations of 63 when the fire hose hit him in the chest, propelled him against the side of the church building, bruised his ribs and uh, was in the hospital for a couple of days because of that. I have said in speeches that when not a drop of water from those hoses landed on King or Abernathy, uh, Shuttlesworth actually was hurt by the stream from those hoses, which were powerful enough to take bark off trees. One of the most interesting occasions was when he was suing Bull Connor and the police chief because they had interrupted mass meetings regularly during the 1958 year. When this uh, suit came to trial in 1960, Shuttlesworth understood uh, he was going to lose the suit, but nevertheless, uh, he went forward with it and got a civil rights lawyer to coach him on courtroom procedure so he could uh, act as his own attorney uh, and have the opportunity to cross-examine Bull Connor. Uh, That he did largely for the sake of inspiring uh, the people of Birmingham to continue and the sort of comic challenge that he brought to Bull Connor and to the segregation system in those days. But it was a parry and thrust over a long seven-year period that I think uh, has, of course, I think this, but uh, I think the Birmingham story and the, the story of the confrontation between Bull and Fred is the most drama per day over a seven-year period than you can find any place else in the whole civil rights story in America. And it would make a terrific film. Let's talk for a second about the screenplay. Is it about these seven years? Uh, give us an idea of what the screenplay, uh, how it came to be and, and where we are with it. I started the research on the book in 1986. Within the first week of deciding to do a biography of of Shuttlesworth. Somehow or another, this needed to be made into a movie. In some ways, I wrote it with that in mind. Made some efforts at getting it in front of some Hollywood types early on, but eventually kind of gave up on that. 
In 2011, I got an email from a young filmmaker in New York who was really just starting out, but he had encountered my book and decided to do a, a movie on Birmingham. That did not work out, but it even more convinced me that uh, this was something that had a chance. Any idea of becoming a film uh, is a very long shot, I'm, I've learned. But in that process, uh, I met a screenwriter uh, in, uh, in Hollywood, a young woman named Denise Snare. We've recently finished it. She is giving the last once-over sort of uh, final polishing before we begin sending it to, to, uh, to places. If there are any agents out there listening to your radio broadcast, uh, I would love to be represented by someone so we could get it in, in front of some production companies. Basically, the, the script uh, strips away a good bit of the background of Fred Shuttlesworth, but it does emphasize this contest between him and Connor. At a secondary level, a bit of a contrast, if not contest, between uh, Shuttlesworth and King. Before it's all over, he takes on Bull Connor, Birmingham Fire Department, Police Department, the black ministers in Birmingham who think he's too egotistical, and King himself. There's enough conflict in this story to keep uh, the audience's attention. There's enough humor, I think, in uh, Shuttlesworth's personality that I really think uh, male African-American actors in their 30s should be salivating over a role like this. <laughs> I was just going to ask you that question next. If you had your dreams fulfilled, uh, who would play uh, Reverend Shuttlesworth? Don Cheadle. Is that right? Uh, I heard Don Cheadle make enough great speeches when he was playing on television on picket fences to be convinced that he could, uh, he could deliver the, uh, the goods as Fred Shuttlesworth. But there are some other actors that uh, could, could also do it. Andrew Manis has been my guest uh, on Progressive Spirit. He's a professor of American religious history at Middle Georgia State University, a historian, a biographer of Fred Shuttlesworth, the book in 1999 uh, called A Fire You Can't Put Out, The Civil Rights Life of Birmingham's Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, and uh, a screenplay uh, written and uh, hopefully near a big screen near you. And uh, thank you, uh, Professor Manis, for, for your work and for uh, bringing uh, this figure uh, to light. Thank you very much, John. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I'm a big fan of your work, and uh, I, I hope the progressive spirit continues uh, uh, for as long as you want it to. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on podcast. Hear it on your favorite podcast app. If you have ideas for guests or would like to comment on an episode, contact me through my website, Progressive Spirit. Net. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well.